So good to be with the church family again. It's good to be with you on this Lord's Day on this Sunday morning. Now, if you're new to Cornerstone, uh, you may not be used to what I'm about to share now, but I give updates to the congregation about my bike rides. And so it's been a long time since I've seen a bear, but on Thursday, I'm going kind of fast and I'm coming around this corner and there's uh, a bear, we'll call him Two-Tone, just sitting right on the side of the trail. I called him Two-Tone because he was soaking wet on the bottom, so he was all dark on the bottom and light on the top, and he's just sitting there. And I think he was eating something, and, and like a good bear, as soon as he saw me, he just sprinted off into the woods. So I don't have a picture of him for you, but I had a bear sighting on Thursday, and I uh, love to be in God's creation, and I also love to see bears. Now, some of you, that like terrifies you, the thought of that, but I just love seeing um, God's creation and, and what he's made, and, and so that was a fun day. Is it okay if I share that with you? It has nothing to do with the sermon. So um, be patient with me if um, you don't like that. So here we are. Uh, we are on a journey through the book of First Thessalonians. And uh, after that uh, quick bear story, I want to move uh, straight into the text of Scripture that was just read. And so let's uh, take a look. Hopefully you have your Bibles open. Uh, there's Bibles in the chairs in front of you or have your device open. Have that thing in sleep mode otherwise so you're not getting distracted. And let's uh, begin and take a look at verses um, 9 and 10 of First Thessalonians 4. Uh, Paul writes here, and he says, Now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Now, really briefly, you'll notice the, the word brothers is used here, or a form of the word brothers, uh, three times in the English text that I have. And I, I just want to make a comment about that. There's a lot of controversy and a lot of discussion about gender-neutral language today, and I'm not going to go too much into that. But the reality is that our, the way that we speak and the way that we write has, has changed. And sometimes the scriptures when it says the word brothers, is referring to brothers, literally boys, males, men who are brothers. Other times when it says brothers, it's referring to the family of God. And this is, this is one of those situations. As Paul is writing about the brotherly love at the church in Thessalonica, he's not talking about just men. He's talking about men and women and boys and girls, young and old, and how much they loved each other. And so there's just there's somewhat of a debate here in, in our culture today about language and, and how we write and even how we translate texts. You might remember the famous line of, of uh, Neil Armstrong where he said, uh, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. When he said mankind in 1969, he wasn't excluding women from experiencing this incredible thing that we accomplished in putting a man on the moon. And so our translations today, like the new NIV in 2011, um, brings out this idea in the translation, even though that word sisters isn't there in the text. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. Paul is encouraging them 
to do what they are already doing, but in a big part, he is celebrating what they are doing. Now, there's another word, a new word for me. I've read this before, but I've never like rejoiced over this word. I don't know. Does anybody, is anybody with me? Does anybody like geek out and get excited over words? Any, anybody willing? Like, I love the word in your English Bibles. It's translated taught by God um, in, in, in verse 9. Now, about brotherly love, we don't need to write to you. Now, we're getting some clue here what's going on. So Paul and Silas and Timothy, their ministry team had been in Thessalonica, and now there's this report that's come back through Timothy. And so now Paul's writing about some of the things that he needs to follow up on based on what Timothy's brought back. And he's basically saying, this isn't one of the things I really even need to write about. Because you've been taught by God, it's one word in Greek. The word is thea didactos. That's the word I'm geeking out over that I really like. That word is only used here in the New Testament. Now, I'm disappointed in that. Why isn't it used more? I don't know. It's only used here. And it's a combination of these two words cra- uh, crashed together. Uh, again, it's the word theo or theodidaktos. And that first word, theos, where we get our word theology, which means God. And the second part of that word, uh, didactos, is where we get our English word uh, didactic or teaching. So this is God taught. In other words, we didn't teach you this. The Holy Spirit, God himself, taught them to love each other in such incredible ways. Paul's just rejoicing over this. It's just fascinating to me, this word. I would love this word to have been used all over the New Testament, but it's just used right here, and it's used to describe how much they loved each other in this church family. Not only in the church family, but they found their way to love Christians all throughout Macedonia, all throughout the area that we would know as Greece. They found the other believers, and they loved them deeply. One commentator writes this. He says, it's not the apostles who teach, but God speaking by the indwelling spirit or Christ. This was God taught. We didn't come there and teach you how to love each other. God himself, the Holy Spirit, taught you. Another commentator writes, taught by God, that word, does not refer to any single teaching, such as an Old Testament passage, the teaching of Jesus, or a prophetic revelation to the church through Paul. This wasn't done through a prophetic word or anyone else. It rather describes a divine relationship through the indwelling Holy Spirit. This is beautiful what we read of in verse 9 and 10. This is a church that loved each other deeply. And then Paul throws this word of exhortation, the last sentence of verse 10. Yet we urge you, brothers, meaning Christians, meaning young and old, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, we urge you to do this more and more, to love each other. This is the apologetic of the New Testament. In John 13, Jesus said, They will know you are my disciples because you carry a really big ESV study Bible everywhere you go. They will know you are my disciples because you vote a certain way. They will know you are my disciples because you want California to secede from the union and become, what is it? What are we trying to become? Yeah, yeah, they will know. They will know. 
They will know because you don't go to the lake on Sunday mornings. They will know that we are his disciples because like the Thessalonian church, we love each other so much. Paul says, I don't even need to write to you about this. So we should be praying, church, that Christ, that the Holy Spirit will teach you, will teach me, Theodictoktos, that we will be God-taught to love one another deeply. As I read this passage this week, as I prayed over this passage this week, several things came to my mind. Things recent that I could share involving some of you and, and things in the past. I want to share with you one of my stories. I've never linked that story to this word or this passage, this word that means God taught. But when I first became a believer, which was near the end of my senior year in high school, the Lord just surrounded me with people who loved me so deeply. And for several years, they were around. I want to tell you one of these stories. I've told this story before, but I think it's been a long time, like 10 years. So we'll see who can remember this story. Do you remember stories of those of you that may have heard this story like 10 years ago or something? But I want to tell you a story. It's from the 1988-89 school year. Who remembers where you were in the 88? Do we have any teachers here? 88-89 school year. So some of us think in school years, um, in years. We're still thinking that way with kids in the home. So the 88-89 school year. I'm in college in Santa Barbara, and I don't have a parking permit, but I have a car, and that was a problem. And my car, it was a pickup truck, died in the parking lot at school. This is a small school. I'm not allowed to have a car. I have a car, and my car's dead in the parking lot, and the administration knows, and I'm in trouble. Now, not only, it's not like the battery is dead, the engine is out. I have no money. I can't tell my parents. I can't tell anybody. I, like, what am I going to do? And so I've got, they're showing me some patience. I'm trying to figure out what to do with my car with no parking sticker. It's not allowed to be there. And it needs a new engine for my truck. And I tell my friend John, who came to know the Lord at the same time uh, that I did. And John is in Dallas, Texas. I'm in Santa Barbara. And I tell John what's going on. And John says, hey, I will come out there. We need to get an engine from a junkyard. And we can put that engine in your truck, and I'll come and help you. And I'm like, what? When he says, I'll come and help you, that means you can, like, hand me the tools while I put an engine. I'll hand him the tools while he puts an engine in a parking lot in a college campus where I'm not allowed to have a car. So he, I'll see if I can get off work. So he takes a week off of work grabs a bunch of Dr. Pepper and chocolate donuts, gets in his car, and drives 25 hours from Dallas to Santa Barbara. He's never been to California. He lands at my dorm room. We go to a junkyard. We borrow a truck. We get an engine. We go to the physical plant. We borrow one of those cherry picker things. To move an engine, we get the engine out, we put it in the truck. After multiple days of slaving on the dirty parking lot where I'm not allowed to have a car, we finally finished. It seemed like three months. I think it was like three or four days later. 
We get the new engine in. The thing starts. It like will move on its own. It's not moving too well, but it moves. And we're able to go, and we have a dinner, and John drives back to Dallas. Didn't go anywhere. That is someone who was taught by God how to deeply love another Christian friend. As I read this passage, as I thought about this word today, I thought about John. I thought about some of you too and more recent stories. But I wanted to share that with you. Might you and I pray that Christ the Holy Spirit will teach us to deeply love one another. I could tell you so many other stories of how God surrounded me with brothers who loved me in such deep and significant ways. The first few years I was a believer. This is what characterized the Thessalonian church. They had problems, and we're going to look at those problems again in a moment. But I think those problems were were to a small group of folks within the church that's not mostly what they were known for, for their problems. They were known for impacting their region. And one of the things they were most known for is they were taught by God to love each other in this deep, deep way. God wants you to be a part of that of spending time, of making time with other believers so that you can love them in deep ways. And we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. That's how he finishes, how I don't even need to write about this, but I'm going to write about it. So pray. Pray that that happens for you and for me. And I am so thankful for the testimony of believers who have loved me in recent times, in recent weeks, in recent months, and who loved me in deep and significant ways because of what God taught them. No no, no one sat my friend John down and said, hey, listen, let me tell you what it means to be a believer. This is the kind of thing you would do. You would take a week off of work and drive across the country to do this lowly act of service that's just pretty outrageous and crazy. That's, That's what we do. No one taught him that. God taught him that. God led him to do that. This is the kind of thing, I don't know exactly what they're doing. Paul doesn't tell us, but this is the kind of love that the Thessalonians had for each other. And Paul and the Holy Spirit is urging us today. The word of God is alive today, urging us to do this more and more. This is all out of verses 9 and 10. Let's come back to the text and look at verse 11 in the beginning of verse 12. It says here in verse 11, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. So if verses 9 and 10 are the highlight or the positive, one of the most positive aspects of the life of the body of believers in Thessalonica, in verse 11, in the beginning of verse 12, we get into one of the problems. One of the problems in the church it's interesting, verse 11 begins, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Your ambition, be ambitious to lead a quiet life. I could preach a whole sermon probably on that, but it would be a really quiet sermon. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. So we need to do some work to find out what's going on here. Mind your own business, attend to your own business. And work with your hands just as we told you. Notice that little phrase. So they addressed this, Paul and Silas and Timothy did, when their ministry team visited Thessalonica. We've already talked to you about this in person. Now we're hitting it again. We didn't need to hit again how you love each other. We did anyway. But 
now this is something we need to hit. This is something we need to address so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. So what's going on here? Well, first, let's just back up and talk about the three problems that the church had. If we jump forward to chapter 5 and verse 14, and I think this is a smaller group within the church. I don't think this is widespread throughout the church. But there were basically three problems, and we read about them in verse 14 of chapter 5. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. That's what we're dealing with here in this verse. Encourage the faint-hearted. That's what we're going to deal with next week. What he means by faint-hearted is some of the believers in Thessalonica had died. And the church is, is, is not sure about what's going on with the end times and the second coming of Christ and when Jesus is going to come and what's going to happen to our brothers and sisters in Christ who have died. And they're, they're kind of freaking out over that. They're faint-hearted. They're, they're weary. They're grieving. So that's the second problem that Paul's dealing with that the church is struggling with. And the third one is that they were weak. And this is weak in the area of of lust, of sexual temptation. And so that's what Paul hit first. That was what last week's text, what last week's sermon was about. So now he's dealing with this first thing, first thing that's listed in verse 14, second problem he's dealing with in the letter, and that is those who were idle. Now, why were they idle? What's going on? Well, it's related to this faint-hearted thing as well. So one commentator writes this, and he's representative of many and, and including my view of this. He says, it seems probable that the idol, what's mentioned in chapter 5, those within the church who are idle, had misunderstood Paul's teaching about the parousia, a fancy word for the second coming, the end, the judgment that's coming. They've misunderstood that, and they had stopped their working in the mistaken belief of parousia hysteria. They were freaking out about the end times, and Christ is coming. So the problem in Thessalonica was likely not laziness, which can be a problem for all of us in different ways and different, different areas of life. So the real issue here isn't just pure laziness. It's that these folks have stopped working because they believe Jesus is coming back like maybe tonight or maybe tomorrow. And they are just getting up in everybody's business, in everybody's face, and telling them they need to be ready for the judgment. And you need to know what we know. And they are just on that mission. And so that is what is being addressed here in verse 11. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Some of us have the tendency to be up in everybody else's business and not looking to our own. And these folks have that tendency. We are fallen just as they were. And, and they have this tendency. We may not have the end times issue that they have and, and freaking out over that. Paul is saying to them, mind your own business and work with your hands. In other words, in that culture, in that day, we're talking about uh, people primarily who worked in fields and orchards. He's basically saying, get back to work. Make sure you punch the clock. Make sure you've done what your boss has told you to do would be the paraphrase. Do your daily work and responsibility, whatever that is. Attend to your own business. Just as we told you. We told you when we were there in person to do that. So that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. It is our, a big part of how we win the respect of outsiders. Is how we daily conduct our lives in integrity. 
It's not about preaching about the end times and the second coming. That's what they were doing. Paul's saying, make it your ambition to be quiet, to work hard with your own hands. Now, we have to piece this together from all that's written in First and Second Thessalonians. So those of you who are like, ah, oh, is this really what's going on? If you seriously study First and Second Thessalonians, I think like Stott and like so many others, you will come to the conclusion that that's what's going on here in these couple of verses. Now, this isn't from the first century, but let me share with you a story. I'm sure most of you were reading uh, St. Hippolytus last night. Anybody reading, reading him uh, last night? So we're going to hear from him today. Um, he was the most important third century uh, theologian, and he wrote a lot. He wrote the first commentary ever written, and it was a commentary on the book of Daniel. That's what I'm going to quote from, and he tells a story about what was going on in Pontus, what, what, what was going on in this, this uh, area of what we would call Turkey today. And so he's telling a true story in his commentary on Daniel about what happened that I'm telling you now because it's similar to what we hypothesize from all we put together from First and Second Thessalonians to what was actually going on in Thessalonica in the first century. This is what was actually going on, according to Hippolytus, in, in uh, an era near him uh, in Turkey. He writes this. He says, a certain uh, other man was similarly in Pontus, and he himself governed the church. So he's like the pastor, the elder, or whatever, the bishop. Being a reverent and humble man, though not applying himself unfailingly to the scriptures, but rather believing dreams which he saw. So this is interesting. As we go back in church history, everybody wants to point to people. I didn't know a lot about him until this week. Everybody wants to claim this guy. Catholics want to claim him. Orthodox want to claim him. Protestants want to claim this guy. And they all cite different things about him. But it's just interesting. If we look at his actual words, what he's saying right here is this, this guy, he doesn't mention his name, in Pontus, in Turkey, he was... Not submitted ultimately to the scriptures, but to his dreams. He's not against dreams. He's not saying God can't speak to you in dreams. But he did not apply himself unfailingly to the scriptures. The scriptures are over our dreams, our visions. If God leads you in some way, the scriptures are over that. And what Hippolytus is saying is for this guy, it was switched. His dream was over the scriptures. He goes on to tell us about him. He says, for when first and second, for when a first and second and third dream happened to him, he began to foretell the future to the brothers, to the church, to the men and women, the Christians, as a prophet. This I saw, and this is about to be. So here's this dream he had multiple times, and now he's telling it to the church. And once, having been led astray, he said, brothers, know that after one year, the judgment is about to be. The parousia. The coming of Christ, the judgment is about to be. Listen to me. It has come to me through a dream. This man in Turkey is saying this. Hippolytus is telling his church, telling the readers of his commentary this. They who heard him, who predicted the day of the Lord is imminent, with weeping and lamenting, they begged the Lord night and day, holding before their eyes the approaching day of judgment. And he led the brothers to such fear and terror, so to allow their lands and fields to be desolate. They were idle. For centuries, most people, they worked with their hands in order to live. They stopped working. 
and the wealthy uh, destroyed their possessions. So those who weren't believers, who had resources, took their stuff, but they waited for the result. And after a year, nothing was fulfilled of what that man said happened. And he himself was shamed as a deceiver. But the scriptures were shown as true. But the brothers were found scandalized. They who sold their possessions without plan were found later begging. This is a similar situation to, I think, what was happening on the ground in the first century. And we could probably go in different centuries of church history and find other people who have done similar things. And so Paul's response, Paul's response here is to work, to work hard, that God gets glorified when you are in your orchard, in your fields, whatever the equivalent is in your daily responsibility. We don't just read this passage and move on. God wants to speak into our lives. Whatever your daily responsibility is in life, have integrity and work at it hard. And this is how others are going to perhaps come to know Christ. They're going to see your faithful work. Your daily life will lead those without Christ to him. Pray that that would happen. That's what Paul and Silas and Timothy are saying again to the church in Thessalonica, that your reputation to the world around you matters. Work hard with integrity, with excellence in your daily life, in whatever you are doing. It is important. It is huge. Don't go off on this tangent. Don't try to get up in everybody else's business. Be ambitious. Be ambitious about being quiet. Putting your head down and working hard. This is important to God. It's one of the qualifications of an elder that you have a good reputation with outsiders, 1 Timothy 3.7. How do we get a good reputation with outsiders? Part of the way that we get a good reputation with outsiders is by doing our daily task, whether you're a teacher, a fireman, firefighter, whatever you are, that you are doing it with integrity, with honesty, with ex excellence. We must have a good reputation with outsiders. This is the message to a small group within the church at Thessalonica. Our response is to pray that our daily life will lead those without Christ to him by the simple ways that we live. As, as some of you know, uh, I've been slowly reading through um, C.S. Lewis's letters. It's going to take me a long time to lead, read through them. We realize how many of these uh, leaders uh, throughout church history, how much they wrote, that we don't even have time to read what they wrote. They're, they're, does that make sense? Someone can talk to me later about my grammar, but um, we, we have difficulty reading the works of many of the great leaders in church history. They not only wrote them, but they, you know, not in his case, but in other cases, they led churches, they did all kinds of things. But he is concerned about his reputation with outsiders. And I've noticed this in, in his letters. I wanted to share one of the letters that he wrote uh, to this guy named Ackworth. And Ackworth was an author. Um, C.S. Lewis, one of his frequent letters that I've been reading is a very, he's very creative and polite about how to say, no, I won't write an endorsement of your book. Like every week he gets requests. Hey, can you write the preface to my book? And it's just fascinating to read 13,000 different ways to say, uh, no, I'm not going to write the preface to your book. This guy, Ackworth, uh, was writing an, an anti-evolution book. And he writes C.S. Lewis, and C.S. Lewis was anti-evolution. 
Uh, they're like on the same page. Like as an explanation for how the world came to be, evolution, no. And so this guy writes a book about it. He writes C.S. Lewis, says, hey, will you, will you endorse my book? Look, what, look how he responds. He says, no, I'm afraid I should lose much and you would gain almost nothing by my writing you a preface. No one who is in doubt about your views on Darwin would be impressed by testimony from me who am known to be no scientist. Many who have been or are being moved towards Christianity by my books would be deterred by finding that I was connected with anti-Darwinism. I hope, but who knows himself, that I would not allow myself to be influenced by this consideration if it were only my personal success as an author that was endangered. But the cause I stand for, and this is why I'm putting this up here, the cause I stand for, which is the gospel, which is Jesus, the cause I stand for would be endangered too. When a man has become a popular apologist, he must watch his step. Everyone is on the lookout for things that might discredit him. Sorry, no, I'm not going to write you a preface. If you don't get what I'm saying here, why I'm reading this, he's saying, I've got evolutionists and atheists reading my books. Some of them are finding Jesus as Savior and Lord. If I become known as the one who writes endorsements for anti-evolutionary books, those evolutionary people are not going to read about Jesus in my books. So I'm not going to endorse your book. He's thoughtful about his daily life. He is working incredibly hard, C.S. Lewis, to have a good reputation with outsiders. And the Thessalonians are called to have the same kind, although their work is very different, they are called to have the same kind of reputation. And so work with your hands. Work with your hands. Do all that you can each day for the glory of God. So that's verses 11 and the beginning of verse 12. Let's come back and look at the end of verse 12. Back at our text. So uh, continuing on there in verse 12, he says, and so that you will not be dependent on anyone or on anybody. So he's telling them a variety of reasons that they need to stop traveling around, getting up in everyone else's business, and they need to work. And one of the reasons is they're now relying on other church families and their income and their food for them to live. And he's saying, don't do that. That's one of the reasons to get back to work. Stott writes this. He says his argument, Paul's argument here in this phrase, in this sentence, is that to work for one's own living is a mark of love. Because then we do not need to depend on the support of fellow Christians while deliberately to give up work is a breach of love because then we become parasites on the body of Christ. Now, there's a balance to this, and I'll get to this in a moment. But what we have going on here is, is not people who aren't willing to work, but people that are using a false theology in order not to work. So get back to work. And by the way, you aren't loving the other families in the church because you are utilizing their labors, their fields, their food for yourself. Don't do that. Don't be dependent on anyone else. If you are able to work, you glorify God, and you don't depend on other people. You depend upon yourself and the, and the ability that God has given you to work and to provide income for yourself. So we're just about done here. Just a couple, I have a total of four points. 
And I'm suggesting as we carefully read this passage that we're going to pray four things. The third is that we will not be financially dependent. And I should probably add more to that because some of us are dependent upon others in the church family. For example, me. (laughs) That's where my income comes from. But if my income is coming from you because I'm up in everybody's business based on false theology, based on bad reasons, that's who ought not to be financially dependent upon others. So this is not as categorical as it sounds here. Are you tracking with me, church? Okay. I should have wrote that differently is another way of saying that. That's why we stand when we're reading the scriptures and why we are seated when we're preaching because you need to be discerning when you're listening to a preacher. And we need to be obedient and reverent when we are listening to the word of God being read. So we are not to be financially dependent, particularly in that situation. Just to balance that out, we, we glorify God uh, when we work for ourselves and provide for ourselves, but we also glorify God when we help people who are genuinely in need. So leaving this passage for a moment, we're done in, in 1 Thessalonians. If we go to Romans 15, it says, For Macedonia and Achaia... So those are two big regions. So one of the, the main church in the Macedonian region is Thessalonica and Corinth and Achaia. So for the church in Thessalonica and the church in Corinth, they were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. So it's a good thing to be dependent to help those who are in need. The saints in Jerusalem were poor. They were pleased to do it. Indeed, they owe it to them. So don't take point number three too strongly. If someone's genuinely in need, it's, we are a body, and part of what we do is help those who are genuinely in need, and the Thessalonians had actually done that. So a fourth prayer to have that balances out number three is that you and I will have finances to help those who are genuinely in need, like the church in Jerusalem was. So this is what the Lord has given me for you today, and I'm suggesting that if we're not going to be just listeners of the words, but doers of the word, that we are going to pray for God's grace. Some of us, you might need to emphasize number four here. When is the last time you were able to help a believer who was in need? If you have credit card debt every month, if you're just barely making it, God, help me to be in a new place. So that I can do what Romans 15 was talking about and have finances to help others in need. On the other side, if we're dependent upon the church because I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing, that was the case here in this passage and with this situation. Help me to be independent financially, to work hard and to glorify you. And then number two, God, I need your grace so that whatever you're called to do every day, whatever you're doing, that you're doing it in such a way that there's massive integrity, there's massive excellence, that you're doing it for the glory of God, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, whatever your work is, that I'm doing it for the glory of God so that I have a good reputation with outsiders. That means non-believers. That means they have their eyes on us. They're watching us. And then finally, and, and perhaps most centrally in this passage, might I be taught by God to deeply love other Christians and and with with lowly acts of service like changing an engine across the country and taking a week off of work to go and do something like that God might you might you teach me to love in that way so that others will know 
that you are our God. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this church in Thessalonica that impacted the whole region of Macedonia. Lord, they weren't a perfect church, just like every church, every local congregation has challenges and struggles. So Lord, help us to learn from theirs. And we pray by your grace that you would grow us and make us as individuals and as a church more like our Savior and his will for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.